Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast, presented by STBB. A conversation dedicated to answering your legal questions and a platform where our team of specialist attorneys share their expert advice and legal know-how with South Africans. Okay, everybody. Morning. Thanks for, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, today, I'm going to be discussing um, the acquisition of shares in property-owning companies. Uh, I'm going to be speaking about this topic because in the last 12 to 18 months, I've, I've received a lot of questions and queries around these, these transactions, given the conveyancing element uh, that sometimes is involved. Okay. Um, I think it's quite important that everybody understand, you know, the do's, the don'ts and everything in between um, when dealing with these, with these types of transactions. So just to, to clarify, okay, there are one in two ways in which a purchaser can acquire an interest in immovable property. Okay. The, the first is the direct way. Uh, we typically would call that an asset strip. Okay. And that involves a process where a company owns immovable property and a company disposes of that property to a purchaser. Now, that's what we would typically understand as the uh, conventional conveyancing process, which is a complicated process. Okay. There's multiple parties involved. There's buyers, there's sellers, there's estate agents, there's transferring attorneys, bond registration attorneys, bond cancellation attorneys, deeds officers, city of Cape Town and the like. An awfully complicated process that, that's 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 got to be administered, and, and that's the traditional asset strip uh, scenario. The scenario that I'm going to be speaking about, though, is the indirect way in which a purchaser can acquire movable property. Okay, and that involves where the purchaser acquires shares from sellers who own shareholding in a company that owns immovable property. They're relatively straightforward transactions, but they're not without risk. Okay. Before moving on, I'm going to be speaking about PTY, LTDs, and, and, and the like. I'm not going to be speaking about close corporations. Um, just one thing that I want everybody to be mindful of is that when dealing with close corporations, uh, you can only have uh, either natural persons or certain trusts that can be the acquirers of members' interests in a close corporation. I've unfortunately had two signed deals come across my desk this month where the purchases were PTYs, okay, that's unlawful, it, it cannot happen. So one's just got to be mindful of that if, for whatever reason, the purchaser does insist that they want to acquire the member's interest in a CC uh, through a PTY, then... Section 29, which I think that you need to be mindful of. Before, before you administer the sale of shares, uh, something you must just keep in mind, it's your source documents. Those are your starting points. Okay. Um, in a company, your source documents would be the MFI and the shareholders agreement read together with the, read together with the Companies Act. Um, if it's a closed corporation, your source documents would be the association agreement read together with the uh, Close Corporations Act. It's important that you have regard to the source documents, the reason being because there may very well be procedural formalities which those documents prescribe that the shareholders need to comply with when they sell their shares to a third-party purchaser. 
questions that we often get asked is, is, well, why would you want to go through acquiring the shares in a company as opposed to acquiring the actual property from the company? Among other things, um, one of the, some of the advantages are some of the advantages are it's quick. Uh, there's no deeds office that's involved um, unless there's a bond that will be registered or a bond to be cancelled, and I'll get to that because that's where it can get quite complicated. Uh, because there's no actual change in ownership. Remember, the property continues to remain to, to remain in the name of the the, the property owning entity. The only thing that changes is the shareholder owning in that entity. So there's no rate securing certificates, no certificates, no. Typically, if I, if I for a purchaser, I would insist on uh, water certificates and electrical certificates of compliance, but it's not a requirement by law where shares are sold in a property owning entity that those certificates be delivered. So it's a really quick and seamless process. Um, I've recently administered a sale of members' interest up in Johannesburg. It was a cash deal. Uh, documents were drawn up in a day, they were signed the next day. And the only reason why the purchasers didn't take indirect transfer of the property uh, there and then was because the seller had an emotional attachment to the property and they wanted to have farewell parties and the like. And I think you know, handover took place two weeks later. Uh, in the conventional sense, from a conveyancing perspective, as we all know, that process can take anything. You know, if it was an asset strip scenario, you're looking at anything between eight to 12 weeks, even in a cash sale. So the advantages are, to sum it up, really nice, neat, quick, less parties involved in the process. Okay. Uh, having said that, the... Mm, sorry, just give me a second. Oh, yes. Sorry, just something that I wanted to mention was that there would be transfer duty. I, I will get to... I will explain a bit later the circumstances in which transfer duty is payable. Uh, having said that, it's not like a conveyancing transaction where you need to lodge uh, your transfer duty receipt as, as part of your... Uh, conveyancing doc documents in the deeds office. There is no deeds office transaction in the sale of shares. Okay. Uh, the only thing that is, is required is that the purchaser pay the transfer duty um, once the agreement becomes unconditional within six months uh, of that taking place. Right. The disadvantages of acquiring shares, <laughs> what one must remember is as a purchaser, you, you aren't only buying into the assets uh, that that company holds, you're also buying into any corresponding liabilities. Okay, so for example, if the property entity has got a mortgage bond, all right, uh, you don't only then buy into the underlying asset that the company holds, you also then will step into the shoes of the, of the sellers and inherit, for want of a better word, uh, the existing debt that's sitting in that company. Uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit of key points as to things that you can do to, to, to look to mitigate those risks. Uh, just from a tax perspective, something that's that's important that you're aware of, um, if you buy the shares in a company, okay, as you know, the property continues to be, to be held in that in the name of the company, and you inherit and you inherit inherit the base cost. Okay. Meaning that if you sell the property out of the company later on, the CGT is going to be higher. So if you think about it practically, when the company first purchased the property, it purchased it at a hundred rand. Um, a couple of years later, the seller of the property says, "Guys, I don't want to sell the property out of the company. I'd rather sell the shares to the purchaser." The purchaser purchases those shares for, for two hundred rand, and 
that purchase then used to come also then decides that they want to sell the property, but as opposed to selling the shares, they sell the property. For CGT purposes, you've got to work on the original base cost at which the company acquired the property, which in the example that I've given you was at 100 Rand. So just from a tax perspective, it, it's not always tax efficient for the purchaser to acquire the property, uh, to acquire the shares in the company, uh, but that's something that one's going to have to go to a registered tax practitioner and procure their advice on. Okay. So just a couple of tips. Uh, first and foremost, I always ask myself, uh, who do I act for uh, when drafting an agreement? Um, to my mind, it's always dictated that the agreement's going to take a, a very different form if I act for a seller or if I act for a purchaser. Um, and I'm just going to speak about purchasers acquiring shares from sellers in companies that own immovable property and, and key things that they need to take into consideration. First and foremost, I spoke earlier about the fact that when you buy shares in a company, you don't only buy into the assets, but you also buy into the corresponding liabilities. For that reason, it's very important that a due diligence be undertaken by the purchaser having regard to the affairs of the company, in particular, the tax-related affairs. So typically what would happen is there would either be management accounts or financial statements for these companies. The purchaser needs to satisfy themselves that those have been uh, prepared in accordance with all prescribed laws and whatever taxes that the company had to pay have been duly paid. Okay. Uh, the other thing is, is what you don't want to happen as a purchaser is you don't want to buy the shares in a company. And for whatever reason, the seller's nominated directors continue to remain on the board of that company. It's not practical. So it's part and parcel when you act for a purchaser, you need to have provisions and agreements to say that the seller's nominated directors will resign okay, on the effective date of the sale and the purchaser's nominated representatives will step on uh, or enjoy a seat on the board of directors. Um, practically, it, it, it depends what's sitting there, but uh, what, what, what we typically cater for is that there will be an assumption of bank, bank account power. So typically when a company is incorporated, there will be a bank account. The sellers will have all the signing powers. If there's a tenant that's in the property, all the funds will be paid to that particular bank account over which the sellers have got the signing powers. You just need to cater for that in your agreement to make sure that those signing powers um, are made over to the purchaser. In my experience, it's, it's not something that one can typically deal with through the agreement other than in broad brushstrokes. It's, it's something that the parties need, need to deal with as a post-closing ob obligation. What I mean by post-closing obligation, it's, it's after the sale has gone through, the parties jointly go to the bank. They sit there together and, and the relevant bank, um, uh, bank authorizing um, transfer powers are made over from the seller to the purchaser. Then, very importantly, if you're acting for a purchaser, you need to make sure that your client is protected. As I said earlier, and I keep going on about it, you don't only buy into the assets, you also buy into the liabilities. Typically, uh, what would happen is there would be all sorts of warranties and indemnities that are catered for in agreements of this nature, uh, in terms of which, for example, the seller warrants that they have complied with any and all tax laws that may be applicable to the company in the sense that the company has discharged whatever taxes may have been required. Uh, there are no third-party rights of first refusal over the shares, so on and so forth. The affairs of the company have been properly administered. The financial statements have been um, have been a prepared according to, to prescribed laws and, and accurately reflect the, the assets and the liabilities of the company, okay? So warranty is typically very, very sensitive topic. 
uh, sellers don't don't enjoy to give them. But when you're acting for the purchaser, you need to protect your client's interests and you need to insist on those uh, on those warranties. Okay. Um, if acting for the seller in the sale of shares in a property that owns immovable uh, property, something that's very important is just to ensure that the cash is secured. Okay. From a conveyancing perspective, um, you know, as, as the conveyances know, first and foremost, it's imperative that either the cash is sitting in your trust account so that you pay it out against registration or transfer, alternatively, that the purchasers have delivered a bank guarantee. The same thing has got to apply. It, it's something that very often gets overlooked. Okay. Uh, typically, what will happen is, is there's a provision in the agreement that parties will include to say that on the effective date, which is typically the date that the agreement becomes unconditional, uh, the purchaser will pay the money across uh, to the seller. Now, that's all fine and well, but that's just an obligation. There's, there's no actual proof of funding, all right? And if you think about it from a conveyancing perspective, we don't even lodge in the deeds office until such time as we know that the purchase price is secured. Um, I advocate exactly the same. Uh, before the effective date, you've got to know that, that the is there, that it will be paid out on the effective date. So sometimes what we what we do is we structure the suspensive condition to say that the money must be put into our trust account and on the effective date we'll pay it out to the seller. Uh, having said that, something practically that that that, that we've that we've experienced, the banks it's it's not so much that they are reluctant, it's it's more that they they aren't prepared to issue in sell share transactions. If they do, it's under very limited circumstances. So best thing that you can do is look to have that money deposited into your trust account and pay it out on the effective date. So key thing, when you're acting for the seller, uh, make sure that the money is secured before the effective date. All right. The other thing is, is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I, I mentioned earlier, if you're acting for the purchaser, you want to ensure that you've got all sorts of warranties in place that the seller offers you. Ditto, if you act for the seller, you want certain limitations of liability. Uh, the limitations of liability, those are purely contractual provisions that we would typically include. They can range from saying that you know, uh, the time period in which uh, claims can be brought is limited. So typically what we will do is we'll say that within uh, claims can only be brought against the seller within 12 months from the effective date. Uh, so if a claim only arises 18 months down the line, Tough luck, you, you've waived your right to, 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 to claim that. So sort of outside of, of that typical two-year prescription period, uh, but, but it's, it's standard for commercial transactions. Okay. Uh, the other thing that we will sometimes do in terms of limitations of liability... Yeah, no, it's, it's quite We will limit the amount... <laughs> Sorry, guys. I can just answer maybe before. Um, thanks. Thanks, Shane. Um The other thing is... is just from a limitations of liability perspective, what we also do is, is we limit the amount that can be claimed from the sellers. So we'll typically say it's a, it's a percentage of the purchase price, um, and that's purely commercial, you know, what the parties are comfortable with. In some circumstances, I've seen say that the, the maximum liabilities of the seller uh, is an amount equal to the purchase price, which I can understand. Uh, I'm currently working on a transaction at the moment where I'm acting for the seller and the instructions to us are under no circumstances is their liability to exceed 10% of the purchase price. So, you know, the limitations of liability, they're great when you're acting for a seller. Keep them in mind. Um, they are commercially acceptable uh, in practice, but um, it's, it's not for us to dictate what those commercial terms are going to 
can be, we can guard the client and draw from previous experiences, but the clients must give us instructions on that. The other thing that's important when you're acting for a seller, and, and I'll speak about this particular point in a little bit more detail later, is making sure that you as the seller are released from surety obligations. All right. So if you think about it practically and you've got a scenario where there is a property owning entity, uh, purchases coming in, they're going to take the seller out uh, in terms of a sale of shares. Uh, that seller, though, historically may very well have stood a surety to the bank for the obligations of the company. All right. And it's very important that in a sale of shares transaction that the seller is released from that surety obligation. Okay, but I'll, but I'll chat to that. I'll, I'll, speak, I'll speak of that now. And th that's sort of in the context of mortgage bonds and the like. All right. And, and this is typically where, you know, sales are, are not vanilla. Okay, vanilla means it's, it's without any sprinkles. There's no flakes or smarties. It's, it's a really plain, straightforward transaction. It's very similar to the one that I spoke about that we administered in, in, in Johannesburg a couple of months ago. All right. Um, transactions are, are, are considered sell shares in, in, in companies that own immovable property down, not vanilla, um, when there's mortgage bonds that are involved. Okay, and that's either where there is an existing mortgage bond Okay, or the purchaser doesn't have the funding available, and what they want to do is they want to use the property entities. Transfer of ownership. Okay. Oh, I think things. About it. The other ones the authority and the like. And typically, how we've practically Hello. There we go. Okay. Sorry about that, guys. Load shedding. Um, so perhaps what I'm going to just do is I'm just going to take a step back and I'm just going to speak about situations where there is a bond that needs to be registered, okay, to secure the purchase price. Uh, typically, the, these these transactions are, are slightly more complicated because if you think about it, there's never never actually a transfer of ownership of the property. It continues to be held in the name of the property owning entity. All that's happening is, is that there's a change at a top level um, in terms of shareholding, all right? So typically how, how we overcome that is we get the sellers of the shares in the company 
to pass a resolution in terms of which they authorize the purchasers to sign the relevant bond documentation on behalf of the company. And those documents will become effective um, against registration of the bond in the deeds office. Okay. It then does start becoming quite complicated because you then need to start linking in your agreement the flow of funds to the bond registration event um, and the like. So that's that's just something that one's got to be mindful of. And, and coupled with that, uh, you also just need to make sure that your sellers are released from any surety or guarantee obligations that they may have provided. Um, there can be substitutions of debt. So there is, for example, a situation that can be uh, that can arise where there isn't a bond that's going to be registered and all, and all that happens is that the purchaser of the share says that they will take over the existing debt. Um, very rare that it happens. We're working on something at the moment where it was contemplated that it could happen with Nedbank. Um, turns out that, that, that it's not going to materialize. I, I haven't seen it take place academically. I can understand that it will work, but, but practically um, I, I don't think that the banks are too amenable to, to catering for substitution of, of, of debts. They'll rather just simply refinance the property. Um, if there's an existing bond that's registered over the property and part and parcel of the transaction is that that bond get cancelled, all right, again, unfortunately, one is then going to have to go into the deeds office. Again, this adds a bit of timing onto uh, time delays onto, onto the transactions. Um, but again, your cash flow event is only going to be, is only going to happen when that bond in the deeds office is cancelled. Okay. Uh, just want to have a look. Ah, then just the last thing I wanted to speak about is, is it, it keeps coming up, is just transfer duty and the circumstances in which in which that is payable. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, the and, and often we get asked the question of, you know, sort of the relevance of residential property owning companies and the like. And, and you know, the definition of, of residential property owning companies comes from the Transfer Duty Act. You can have a look at Section 2 over there. All right. Uh, but it's only relevant from a tax perspective insofar as transfer duty is concerned. Okay. And in terms of the Transfer Duty Act, property is defined as including a share in a residential property owning company. Okay. What is a residential property owning company? It's a company in which the fair value um, of the company's, sorry, let me just repeat that. Um, a residential property company is principally defined as being a company that owns residential property, the fair value of which comprises more than 50% of the aggregate fair value of all the assets of the company. Okay, so, so what does all of that mean? If I've, got a, if I've got a company that owns property and it's got a diversified portfolio in the sense that it's got commercial and residential property, and the commercial property is worth 6 million rand and the residential property is worth 4 million rand, well, then it's not a residential property owning company. It is a commercial owning enterprise. Okay. And that would not trigger the payment of transfer duty. Transfer duty, it's the responsibility of the purchaser. To go back to the same example, if that same entity owns residential property to the tune of 8 million, but commercial property to the tune of 2 million, well, then it's a residential property owning entity, which in those circumstances would trigger the payment of transfer duty uh, by the purchaser. Okay, how's transfer duty calculated? It's based on the fair market value of the property. Okay, and, you, and you'll pay it at the at the standard rate pro rata to the percentage of shareholding that you acquire. So, 
let's just use a practical example. If, if, if the property is worth 5 million and the purchaser is buying 100% of the shareholding in the company, well, then effectively they're going to be paying five, um, transfer duty on a 5 million rand purchase price. If, however, the purchaser is only paying, uh, sorry, is, if the purchaser is only acquiring 50% shareholding in the company, okay, transfer duty is then calculated as it follows. It's what transfer duty would be payable on 5 million. Okay, so if transfer duty on a 5 million rand purchase price is 100 rand, all right, uh, but because you are only acquiring 50% of the shareholding, your transfer duty obligation to the receiver of revenue is 50 rand in those circumstances. All right. Uh, so it's, it's the only thing that you need to be mindful of just from a tax perspective and, and from transfer duty. Um, and that's it, guys. You know, th those are just general things that you need to be mindful of, of in these types of transactions. Uh, they're great in, in, in the sense, as I mentioned earlier, that you can really speed them up and, and get them over the line quite quickly. There are complications that are involved when uh, you, you've, you, you've got to go into the deeds office. Uh, and the other thing is, is that they are not without risk, but there are certain mitigations that you can look to introduce through due diligences, warranties, um, and the like when acting for a purchaser. Okay. So, yeah, guys, over, over to you if anybody's got any questions. Andreas, may I just John. thank you very much. I think that was very insightful and very helpful. If I can, if I can just add five cents worth at, at the end. Sure. Um, on, on the authority that you spoke about in the beginning, uh, people must just be aware that if you're acting for um, a close corporation, I think... Um, if you sell, buy or sell immovable property, you need 75% uh, of the members. I'm not sure what that would be if you buy the, the member's interest, whether that's just the consent of the other member or whether you would, you would actually need the, 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 the members to, to agree if you're buying a portion or something like that. I mean, that's just one thing. Yep. From a tax point of view, um, if, the, if the company is registered for VAT, then, of course, you won't be paying transfer duty. Um, on the transfer of those shares, but you will be paying security transfer tax. So just be aware of the security transfer tax issue that that, that will always arise. I think I can never remember what it is, but I think it's 0.5 percent of the of the value of the of, of the shares being being transferred, and that is payable by the company. So in the agreement, if you want to recover that from the purchaser, the company needs to make provision that it will you know be paid by the by, by the purchaser, and then of course, just from a, you know from a, from a tax point of view, uh, you said the reasons why one would buy the shares. If you're acting for a seller, I think one needs to be very very careful on what the base value of those shares would be, because quite often the, the the high base value would sit in the in the company or the close corporation, and not in the in the in the shareholders' hands, because it might have been a shelf company that acquired the the shares or the members' interest for, for 100 rand, and now suddenly they're selling the shares for 10 million rand. Um, you're, you're, and, and if you don't have loan accounts floating around there, I think you, you can have huge problems from a capital gains tax point of view in, in, in the seller's hands. So, so people must just be aware of, of that aspect. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and I think, I mean, I always say when I speak to people about this aspect, and, and, and please, if you if you confronted with this, don't treat it as a property transaction. Um, most cases, it's a commercial transaction with a property 
aspect linked to it. Um, and, and don't be afraid to, to, to ask for help from our department. Um, we, we deal with these things all the time. I mean, if you, you know, the moment you start having things like employees in there and you sell the shares, there are all sorts of things that you need to keep in mind on, on employees because they are not protected in terms of Section 197 um, because it's not a, it's not a sale of a, of a going concern. But you inherit all the employee problems that there will be in that company if you're the purchaser. Um, so, you know, there, there, are, there are a multitude of aspects that you need to take into, into account. And unfortunately, clients and especially agents expect, you know, the sale of a member's interest or a sale of a shares on, on immovable property to be dealt with in the same way as a normal sale of a property. It, it can't be. There are other aspects and you will have to educate your clients that they're going to have to pay for that expertise at the end of the day because it takes far more time to put a, a transaction like that together uh, sometimes than, than it would to to put a normal property transaction together. So, but thanks very much, Andre. That was very, very insightful. Jacques, just, just, just interestingly, there was a, there was a case and, and uh, you know, it's maybe just something for, for, for everybody to consider. There's, there's something that Morena sent out on Friday last week um, in, a, I think it's in the close corporation, uh, where there was a dispute between two members and there was a majority member who actually was able to force the minority uh, to sell their members' interest to them. Um, that's quite useful because, you know, we, we, we've had quite a lot of matters come across our desk where there are disputes between members in a close corporation and shareholders in a company. Um, and, and, you know, the guys want to sell the properties, but they're not sure how to do it. And, you know, they, they, they get into fights and, you know, who acquires who's shareholding and the process to be followed. Um, that case, that, that case was, was, was quite insightful. I don't think it was a Western Cape decision. Um, and I also think it was made by an acting judge. But, yeah, it's, it's, it was quite an interesting case. And I'd recommend that if, any, if people have got the time, they should go read that case. Um, it's quite useful to, to, to have a look at if I can add something else, just on the timing, if the, if the company is financing the purchase of, of um, the shares or the member's interest, um, in the case of a company, it's probably easier to get your timing correct because it's just a transfer of the shares that you control. But in a close corporation, it can be more tricky because ownership in, those, in the member's interest only passes on registration at CIPC and not purely on delivery um, of, of, of the shares. So that's always difficult. So you need to cater that even if the bond is registered, nothing is paid out until you get proof that the, that the member's interest has in fact been registered, transferred member's interest has been registered uh, at CIPC. Yeah. Um, Andreas, it's Mike. Hey, Mike. Um, do we have a, a sort of a hand guide or a layman's guide showing the matrix of what what taxes are paid when? And we're talking, you know, transfer duty, STC, VAT, um, and then and then the various subcategories of VAT, the VAT transactions. Um, I remember uh, in my previous uh, professional career, uh, we had a very useful kind of a matrix which set out every every possibility, okay, um, which is a very helpful for conveyances and 
and commercial lawyers. I mean, do we have, has anybody seen something like that or know whether we have it in STBB? And if not, I really think um, we should we should produce one. Mike, I don't think we have anything. No, not, not to my knowledge either, but Mike, I'll take um, Andreas's talk of this morning as, as a starting point and just draft something, send it to your department for, for checking and adding to it if, if you want. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, that'll be great, Moraine. I think I think it's really helpful to get that out and, and circulate it internally, and and I mean, if it if it makes sense to to clients, because we're always getting questions on the phone or in emails. You know, uh, what is payable in this kind of a transaction? Um, and if we have that in front of us, and you know, it's be be really helpful. I mean, Jacques, I guess you, you're the, not, not that I want to load you with more, <laughs> with more things to do, but I mean, from a tax perspective, I guess you're, you're the man to drive that. I'm, I'm very happy to sit with you and go through all the scenarios. Um, you know, even if no, we, no, no, let's see. Um, Irena, if, you can, if you can circulate something, then, then we, we, we can get it out. Yeah. We'll do. Okay. 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 Excellent. Okay, guys. Um, yeah, I, th I think just in closing from our side is, yeah, I I've sort of made these transactions seem relatively straightforward um, and they can they can very well be. Um, to Jacques' comment of earlier, sometimes from a timing perspective, they can actually get quite complicated. Um, you know, ideally, you know, yes, it, 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 it is a commercial transaction where, where, where the underlying asset involved is it's property. So, you know, if, if, if anybody's ever looking for assistance or guidance on these types of transactions, we've we fortunately done um, many of them in the past, so yeah, we'll be very happy to help you guys. Okay. Legally speaking, this podcast has come to an end. Thanks for joining the conversation. And if you like what you're hearing, visit us at stbb.co.za for more info.